This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And welcome to another episode of Keeping Carlson Short Shifts, your twice-weekly or tweakly podcast dedicated to keeping you up to date in between the episodes of the mega episodes of Keeping Carlson delivered to you every Sunday night. My name is Ben Burnett, and I am joined, of course, by my co-host, Louis Ezekiel. Louis, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm having a good one, Ben. Really thrilled uh, to have picked up Alex Tuck the other night. I got a nice suggestion from fellow teacher at Shane C. Thompson about grabbing him. I didn't get him for his two-goal night, but I got him for his three-assist night today. Uh, really enjoying having him on the team. Looks like he took t- uh, Glass's spot on power play one for the Golden Knights, so somebody to maybe keep an eye on moving forward. He got 16 minutes tonight, including two and a half on the power play. We are, of course, brought to you by Keeping Carlson. Uh, Lewis and I tweet together at AVG Time on Ice. That is our Twitter account. You can, of course, and you should, of course, also follow at Keeping Carlson on Twitter. So we are going to start with two major headlines, and that is the coaching changes in Calgary and New Jersey. First of all, we're going to talk about Calgary. And so what we've seen today is some lines from practice that are a total shakeup of what we've come to expect from Calgary over the the past few years. We're so used to seeing Johnny and Sean on top line with Elias Lindholm, and then a second line that's centered around Backlund and Kachuk. Michael Ferlik has spent some time there. They were dubbed the 3M line for a while. They've kind of been up and down with the right winger on that line, but for the longest time, those five players have been stuck in their position, and based on practice lines today, Things have changed. So the top line saw Elias Lindholm at center with Matthew Kachuk and Andrew Majniapani on the right side. Monaghan was on a separate line playing with Backlund and Dylan Dubé, while Johnny Gaudreau was all the way down on line three with Milan Lucic and Derek Ryan. The Flames do have until Thursday off, and so their interim coach Jeff Ward said that he wanted to try something different in practice before seeing it in a game so I ask you, Lewis, are there big takeaways? Are there is there anything concrete that we can take from the lines that we saw reported today at practice? The way I'm sort of looking at this is I'm hoping that we're seeing kind of uh, not a troll job exactly, um, but just, you know, trying some things out for the sake of trying them out in Calgary and see what goes on. Um, I honestly, though, wouldn't necessarily be surprised to see Johnny Gaudreau start somewhere down the lineup in the middle six, uh, just because he seems to need some kind of spark. And maybe the coach is trying to give him a kick in the pants and uh, challenge him to really elevate his game because he has obviously been letting down his owners so far this season. 
I think one thing that gets lost a lot of the time in conversations when we're looking at practice lines is that the difference between line one and line three has legitimately changed quite a bit. Teams aren't just stacking all of their best players on the top line and then putting grinders on that third line, right? So when we look at lines that split up, uh, sometimes we'll see a report of lines from practice and somebody's down on line three and you're like, whoa, why is that player on line three? And really it just means that they're running out as the third line in a line drill. They may be the third line that gets played in the game, but they're not getting minutes that you know, that they're the ninth most important player on the forward group. So that was my first thought when I saw Johnny Gaudreau on line three. Once I realized that he was with Milan Lucic and Derek Ryan, though, I realized, <laughs> oh, no, this is for sure the checking line. Johnny Gaudreau is not being put in a position where he could potentially elevate middling offensive players. He's being put with some offensive anchors. And so that's definitely the one thing here that I'm not into. Honestly, Monahan playing on the wing would be amazing for my fantasy team if he could get that left wing eligibility. I think he and Backlund would be fine together. Seeing Lindholm Kachuk together is great. And honestly, as a quasi Flames fan living just outside of Calgary, as I do, I've always liked Andrew Majniapani. He has been one of the Flames' fourth best forward. He's been the fourth best forward on the Flames by Evolving Hockey's goals above replacement stat. He hasn't been super productive this year, but I think that he's someone who could shine if given a top six role, and I've wanted to see him there for a while. So overall, definitely I'm not stoked as a Johnny Gaudreau owner, but the top six, like, there aren't any huge red flags outside of the Goudreau placement here. So hopefully if we see some positive regression from Johnny, we can see him maybe uh, improve a little bit. Do you think it's possible uh, that he could get back on pace? You know, certainly he's not going to meet last year's points totals, barring uh, a real offensive explosion. Uh, But do you see him, you know, climbing back at some point to a 70, 80 point pace? So the interesting thing with Goudreau is that when you look at those underlying numbers, his even strength on ice shooting percentage, his IPP, these numbers are at career low or near career low for him. And if you regress those numbers up to his career averages instead, you'd expect him to have closer to about 80 points right now. He would be about a point per game guy. Maybe not the 95 point guy you were hoping for when you drafted him. You know, maybe you reached for him in a league. I would understand that but definitely better than the, what, the 55 points that he's pacing for right now. So to me, Johnny Gaudreau is a definite buy. If you can go out and get him for a 60-point player, a 50-point player even, go out and do that right now, five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, get out there and make that deal. Yeah, I like it. So, yeah, I I think everyone in hockey would be quite happy, I think, to see Johnny Gaudreau up there. Certainly, he is poorly uh, set up for his role on a checking line with Milan Lucic, as one thing that we know about Gaudreau is that contact is not something he is actively seeking out. Yes, that is absolutely correct. And, And Coach Ward today said that he is looking at experimenting. So my hope will be that we'll see something Similar to these lines, but maybe with Gaudreau bumped up. I wouldn't mind seeing Gaudreau in that Dylan Dubé spot on the second line with Monaghan and Backlund. I think that that could be a really, really interesting line and leave Kachuk and Lindholm with Menjniopani and see what they can do. I think that that would be a pretty solid top six. And at the very least, if it doesn't work out, you know that there are other lines that have worked in the past. 
Lewis, we got to move on to the second coaching change that we've seen, and that happened today. John Hines finally fired in New Jersey after getting smoked by Buffalo 7-1 last night. Alan Nezredine, formerly, as you noted to me earlier, of Michael Scott's favorite team, the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins, has taken over in New Jersey, and we saw some new lines Kind of a twist on some old lines. Rather than the traditional Palmieri Heeshear Hall line, Jesper Boakfist was up with that unit to start the game, while Taylor Hall was toiling down with Pavel Zaka and Jesper Bratt. Nikita Gusev stayed with Zajac and Coleman, and then Wayne Simmons on the fourth line with Kevin Rooney and Miles Wood. Hall ended up getting some time with Heeshear and Palmieri throughout this game, so I'm thinking. In his first game in the NHL, Nezredin didn't shake things up too much. The top power play, of course, still missing Jack Hughes, included Nico Hishier, Palmieri, Gusev, Vatanen, and Hall, just as we expected. So we didn't see the instant jump up into the top unit for P.K. Subban, but instead the continuing hold for Sammy Vatanen on that top power play unit. Do you have a sense of players who have a shot at raising their stock as a result of the John Hines firing. Nice to see Heeshear go out there and get another goal in as many nights. Uh, they were up against Malcolm Subban, who was playing his second game in net in as many nights, and that might have helped them be a little more successful offensively than they might have been otherwise. But a nice bounce back, I think, uh, from a 7-1 defeat to only lose 4-3. to You know, baby steps here, I think, in New Jersey. I would hope to see P.K. Subban eventually reassert his position on that top line. If he is waiting around on your waiver wire, it might be worth investigating. But as you said, we didn't see major changes quite yet uh, from Nasruddin behind the bench in New Jersey. Uh, and those changes might not come. We may see Sammy Vatanen ride out, uh, you know, at least the next while uh, in that power play one spot. But uh, since PK has been essentially droppable up to this point, it'll be interesting to see if Uh, the fast hand will be able to pick him up and he'll be productive moving forward. I do think if there are any gains to be made from the John Hines firing, it would be someone like Taylor Hall, whose shooting percentage is just already so low that he's due for a lot of regression. So I would expect to see, for example, his 4.1 shooting percentage to bounce right back up to closer to 10% on the season. That would give him about 10 goals this year as opposed to the four that he has and put him just above a point-per-game pace. I don't know that that's necessarily a result of John Hines being fired. That seems to be more of a shooting percentage regression issue. But absolutely, I think that the top players in New Jersey may have an opportunity to regress. And then my hope would be as well, these guys like Taylor Hall with a minus 11 on the year, hopefully Nezredin is able to implement a defensive structure that allows them to give up fewer goals and maybe could even help a Mackenzie Blackwood who struggled in his sophomore season in nets. Yeah, really good points. I think, um, sort of reasserting the natural order of things might be the first uh, business with uh, the new interim coach. Uh, he's not maybe under the pressure to kind of mix and match the lines in the same way that Hines was, just trying to find something, anything that would work, and it might allow for a more uh, natural hierarchy to start to emerge. Absolutely. Let's get into a few injuries before we get into our second segment here. Nothing massive. Don't worry, folks. We're not dealing with another Miko Rantanen or a Mitch Marner. 
Patrick Hornquist, who's been cold since returning from injury, got hurt once again. Lewis, what is the result of the Patrick Hornquist injury? So he had been playing on the wing with McCann and Cahoon. Now the second line consists of Galchenyuk, McCann, and Stefan Noson. Uh, the pronunciation optional <laughs> on that one. We'll see how things shake out uh, on game day for the Penguins, who don't play again until Wednesday night, the evening that hopefully you are listening to this podcast. So we'll see how that turns out. Um, not especially interested in that second line right now. McCann was interesting when he was with Malkin, now that he's not. Uh, it also does give Gilchenyuk an opportunity to play some more on that top power play. You know, certainly each of these injuries really piling up making things tough uh, defensively. So uh, we've seen both Tristan Jari and Matt Murray struggle as of late. Uh, Jari overall still has the superior season, and we talked last week about how we're kind of entering that lull period for Matt Murray. Um, So we might see it go back and forth for a little while longer. Uh, But yeah, with Hornquist kind of, as you said, uh, struggling a little bit before going out, I don't know that this makes huge waves for... Sounds about right to me. The second injury, of course, in Minnesota. Jared Spurgeon left the game in the first after taking a shot from Sasha Barkov. Did not return. Obviously something worth monitoring. I would recommend checking out Game Day Lines at gamedaylines.com to see how those lines shake out the next time the Wild hit the practice ice. And Lewis, one more outjury uh, of sorts. Not really a player who was injured but maybe his pride was injured after missing so many games recently i think it has to have been so kyle turris was able to get back into the predators lineup after seven games as a healthy scratch he really looked primed to go Uh, he recorded a power play goal and an assist playing 16 minutes Uh, the power play goal was beautiful he found the slimmest space between renee's skate and the post on a one-timer off a feed from matthias ekholm But I think we need to caution just a little bit. I think some of this is kind of the adrenaline rush of being back. But it's also worth pointing out that Ryan Johansson was ejected following an elbowing major, uh, which would have opened up some more prime deployment for Kyle Turris to skate in. So I would say wait until we see a couple games with Ryjo back in the lineup and see what kind of deployment Turris is getting and if he can keep up his pace. Um, but definitely someone to keep an eye on now that he is back from his exile. It looks like Kyle Turris was skating between Daniel Carr and Callie Yarncroke for the Preds, so definitely not going to get overly excited about that at even strength. Obviously, Turris did see some second power play unit usage as well. I'm not overly excited about Kyle Turris as long as Peter Laviolette is in Nashville, unless, of course, he starts to put together some productivity and actually shows that he can do it but definitely not as excited as I would have been a few years ago when Kyle Turris was looking like a legit offensive option in a on an actual NHL team and I'm not sure that the Preds qualify as an actual NHL team these days harsh but fair uh he did have some moments last year certainly where he was fantasy relevant you got to kind of pick your spots with him stream him in when he's hot and drop him pretty quick once he starts to cool off Absolutely. Lewis, we are going to move on to our final segment of today's show. This is a snoozer-based segment. 
Though we are going to give it a little bit of a subtitle, we've each picked a forward and a defenseman that we're about ready to give up on 25 games in. We're going to ask, is it time to hold out hope or dump his ass? Lewis, I'm going to start with Phil Kessel in Arizona, 77% owned in Yahoo, so he's in... He is not available in any league that I'm in. He's also owned in 100% of Cupful Divisions, the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, of course, the best fantasy league in the world, run by Brian and Elon, where each patron of Keeping Carlson is sorted into different tiers, different divisions, and they are all competing with extremely dedicated fantasy managers. The toughest league I'm in, the most fun league I'm in. Become a patron of Keeping Carlson so you can join and compete against us. But Phil Kessel owned in each one of those cupful leagues. My, I'm going to ask, should he be dropped? So, before tonight's power play assist, Kessel had four points over a stretch of 13 games. His 42-point pace is barely rosterable in shallow leagues, much less the Kakupful, a league where people are struggling to find, you know, even a 50-55 point pace off the waiver wire. The Yotes in general just haven't been a big scoring team this year. They're 20th in the league in goals four, and that's been a very balanced attack for them. Nick Schmaltz leads the team with 20 points through their first 28 games, while Kessel is tied for fifth as of this recording with 15 points. Definitely not what we would have expected from Kessel 28 games into the season after he was first traded to the Coyotes. I remember talking with folks in the offseason, is Kessel or Keller going to lead this team in points? Which of them is more likely to hit 70 points was kind of the discussion. And right now it's definitely looking like neither. Now, there are some good signs with Phil Kessel that I've found. He is leading the team in power play time on ice every game. That's good. His on-ice shooting percentage is also very low at even strength, which usually means that we should see some regression. His expected goals for per 60 is also still more or less in line with the Pittsburgh days. I do have some adjusted expectations for Kessel moving forward, though. I do think his power play pace of around 20 points is fairly sustainable. Where I do think he should see gains, though, is at even strength, where that on-ice shooting percentage and IPP should regress just a little bit. And if you do regress it to his career averages, I think that would net him about an extra four or five points. So I expect this point pace to be around 57 if he were to get the right bounces. Rest of season, I think 60-ish points sounds about right for Kessel. So in deeper leagues, I'd hold for a bit longer just because the upside obviously is so high. We've seen him be a point-per-game player as recently as last year. But if I'm in shallow leagues where 60-point players are on the waiver wire, I'm happy to stream them out until we start to see some actual returns to form because I'm not sure that the ceiling is there in the same sense that it was before. Yeah, I think this is just what a lot of us were sort of worried about in the offseason as Kessel made his way to the desert. You know, would he be able to keep up these Pittsburgh-esque numbers without the same sort of uh, offensive acumen among the forwards in Arizona? And, you know, really, was he capable of sort of carrying his own weight and could he drive the play uh, as he starts to age a little bit and slide down the other end of the aging curve? Uh, Yeah, definitely been a challenge for him so far. Lewis, why don't you tell us the first snoozer that you looked into tonight? It would be my pleasure. Now, I have to say I'm a little concerned about him just because we have had some development since I presented him, but I'm going to stick to my guns here. Uh, So I'm talking about Matt Dumba, 79% owned in Yahoo, 80% owned in the Cupful. 
Uh, he's had his position on power play one usurped by a productive Spurgeon, and he finds himself this year at merely a 26-point pace. Now, this is way out of line with the expectations that many of us had for Dumba in the offseason. We saw him as a double-digit goal-scoring defenseman last year, which was quite a rare breed, and a lot of people thought, uh, myself included, that this is someone who could have led defensemen in goal-scoring, potentially, uh, maybe getting as high as 15 or even 20 in really ideal circumstances. Obviously, that has not come to pass. Uh, The offense has dried up to a large degree in Minnesota, although they're picking it up a little bit more recently. Uh, Getting into his numbers here, he is experiencing the worst IPP in his last three years, but the offense simply isn't running through him as much with him off of the top power play. Uh, He's down around 26%, which is obviously not great. Uh, He's actually still outperforming his individual expected goal rate uh, by about the same amount that he was able to do in his most successful seasons the last two years, uh, in which he's managed to about double his actual goals versus his individual expected goal rate. The fact that he is still about doubling his individual expected goals rate with his goal total of three this season is why I think we have some concern about him. This is not a case where he is simply, you know, regressing hard in the other direction there. Uh, His offensive zone starts are at about 46%. It's down from last year, but still a point above uh, what he was doing in his best season two years ago when he scored his 10 goals. The area that is really suffering for Dumba is his total assist per 60 Uh, He's only getting a quarter of an assist for every 60 minutes he is spending on the ice. That's below last year's totals of 0.4 total assists per 60, and less than a third of what he was able to accomplish two years ago when he was up at 0.82 assists per 60. With the Wild scoring less and Dumba off power play one, I don't know if that plummeting assist number... Uh, along with his IPP, are bound to regress all that much to the positive. Yes, we did see Jared Spurgeon leave with an injury, so I think it is worth uh, waiting around on him just to see how Spurgeon is doing and if he is expected to be out for any significant length of time. But I am ready to dump Matt Dumba. Yes, that does not sound ideal. Let's look at our third snoozer this week. I'm talking about another desert dog. I'm talking about Oliver Ekman Larson. He is 80% owned in Yahoo, 100% owned in the Cacupful once again, 10 points to start the year, and that is a 28-point pace for a player who's supposed to be a de facto power play one anchor pushing for 50-plus. So he has another zero-point game tonight, and while he is back on the top unit after getting bumped for Jakob Chikrin earlier this year, there's reason to be concerned about Arizona's lack of production. I do think the scariest thing about OEL is that there's nothing tremendously unsustainable about his performance. His personal shooting percentage is a little low, but not so low that it screams huge upswing in the future. Worse, his shot rates are falling, as are his hit rates. I'm starting to think he's about the same as a Goligoski or a Chikrin, 
rather than being that full tier ahead of them that I would have pegged him for in the preseason. So while I do think that OEL should be more of maybe a 40, 45 point player in a season long, assuming his power play deployment can hold, it's tough to recommend holding him in shallow formats. In deep league, I do think he's dumpable if you're in a must-win matchup and his schedule is really bad or if there's someone really, really appealing on the waiver wire and you don't have another drop. His ceiling just isn't what it used to be. So I do think that in shallower formats, it is time to say goodbye to the boy OEL. And you know, this was a guy that we sort of have been waiting to sort of turn the corner and get past uh, some of the challenges that he's faced, both personal and in terms of injuries that he experienced. Uh, And I'm wondering if we are at the point where we think he might not get there uh, to sort of be the guy that we hoped he might eventually be. Yeah, I would definitely say that we've seen the the best of OEL. I'm not saying we've seen all we'll see of him, but definitely a little uh, reason to be concerned moving forward. Lewis, why don't you tell us about your final player tonight? So my last player that I am wondering if we hold out hope or dump is Anders Lee. Uh, This is a guy who I have really enjoyed having my fantasy teams in the past, putting up plenty of shots, scoring goals, Kind of a classic Cy Young guy with lots of goals and not too many assists, but taking lots of shots and a a guy who hits as well. Lee is at a 41-point pace to start the season, and that's with three points in the last uh, three games, including two points over the lowly Red Wings. Uh, These are his only points uh, that he's managed in his last 10 games. His even strength IPP is right around his average at 61%. Uh, He's not much of a distributor, as I mentioned, Uh, so really goals are sort of where we are relying on him, so we're not super surprised to see that IPP not especially high. Even strength on ice shooting percentage is almost exactly in line with the last two years and is pretty average at 9.57. Shots per 60 look normal. Uh, And again, this is a player who, despite his low totals, is overperforming his even strength individual expected goals by about 50%. Uh, The place where you really start to see some concern is on the power play. Would you believe me if I told you that Anders Lee has 100% PPIPP? I hate when you say it like that. (laughs) One of my favorite stats. So he has an assist on the only goal that his power play unit has been able to produce during 48 minutes of power play time this season. Worse uh, his zero goals is only one goal behind his individual expected goals metric on the power play. He's pacing for less than 60% of his individual expected goals on the power play compared to last year. And we don't know if he is capable of turning those expected goals into goals on the power play. So this is a grim situation for him to be in power play wise stuck on that second power play, which is not especially effective. Uh, it really is looking tough for him. I might hold him in a league that counts hit and blocks if there aren't any tastier options out there, but I think if you are in a points league, or if there is anything vaguely interesting on the waiver wire, and Alex Tuck, for instance, I would be ready to dump Anders Lee and pick up someone with a little more flash. I think I'm with you. I, I would drop Anders Lee for Alex Tuck while he has this 
while he has this deployment. Uh, my hope would be that while Anders Lee is on the waiver wire, he maybe gets better deployment, and I can see about adding him later on while nobody decides to check if he still has signs of life because it's just been such a slow start to the year. Yeah, and not the kind of thing that you want to see, especially when he, you know, is getting pretty nice, even strength deployment and just not really producing a whole lot with it. Absolutely. Lewis, that's all we have time for today. For myself, Ben Burnett, I'm signing out of here. Lewis, why don't you take us home? All right. Well, we want to extend our appreciation to Yahoo, Natural Stat Trick, at Game Day Lines. Uh, left wing lock daily face off for helping us with our research for this episode. Uh, please give us a follow on Twitter at AVG Time on Ice at Keeping Carlson. Until we see you next time, play smart and keep your shifts short. <laughs>